History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 408th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we are doing a topic that was suggested by our moderator and listener, Wes Hawkins. You mean Wicked Wes? Wicked Wes, (laughs) who also hosts our HGB virtual trick-or-treat for the last two years. Excellent. And he does such a great job. This is just perfect to get into right before Halloween. We actually did produce a bonus cast, bonus cast number 103 that featured werewolves, but this one is much more expanded to that. Looking forward to it. Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Brian, Mary, Aaron with an E, Elise, Loana, Sherry, Chad, Rhonda, Rebecca with two Ks, Leanne with an E at the end, Chris, who spells his name K-R-I-S-S, love that, Christopher, and Kate with a K. Thank you so much for joining us in our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by John Michaels. They say art is in the eye of the beholder. Sometimes art is meant to make a political statement, but art should never be deadly. Sometimes it is, though, and in 1991, it was downright bizarre. In 1991, husband and wife artist team, Christo and Jean-Claude, put up an environmental installation that consisted of thousands of giant yellow and blue umbrellas. The installation opened in California and Japan simultaneously. The giant umbrellas measured about 20 feet in height, 28 feet in diameter, and weighed about 500 pounds. The California piece stretched for 12 miles, and the one in Japan was 18 miles. People came from everywhere to see the art piece. Two months after the exhibit was installed, the wind gust uprooted one of the umbrellas and blew into a woman named Lori Ray Keevil Matthews. The giant umbrella crushed her against the boulder, killing her. Cristo ordered the umbrellas to be taken down after that, but the umbrellas weren't done taking lives. A crane operator in Japan named Masaki Nakamura was electrocuted when the crane's arm touched a 65,000-volt high-tension line while he was removing an umbrella. Giant umbrellas killing people certainly is odd. Get out. And now, this month in history. of October on the 20th in 1973, the Sydney Opera House opens. The Opera House is an iconic symbol for not only Sydney, but also Australia. 
The spot chosen for it alongside Sydney Harbor was a site once held sacred by the Gadigal people. The structure was designed by Danish architect Jorn Jutzen and took 15 years to finish. The Opera House was funded from profits of the Opera House lotteries and cost $80 million to build. The distinctive design features geometric roof shells, and there are several large auditoriums inside. Queen Elizabeth II dedicated the Sydney Opera House on that day in 1973. The first performance in the complex was the Australian Opera's production of Sergei's Prokofiev's War and Peace. In 2007, the Opera House was included on the UNESCO World Heritage List, giving it placement alongside structures like the Pyramids in Egypt, the Great Wall of China, and the Taj Mahal. That made it the youngest structure to be included on the list, and only one of two that made the list during the life of its architect. Hudson passed away in 2008. Werewolf lore has been a part of human history for centuries, and some of the best horror movies feature werewolves. We've covered the hysteria that surrounded the witch hunts and trials in Europe and America. Not many people realize that there was a similar hysteria when it came to reports of werewolves. It is possible that 100,000 people were executed for being suspected werewolves in Europe from the 14th to the 17th centuries. On this episode, we are going to explore some of the legends of werewolves throughout the world. Universal's The Wolfman, an American werewolf in London, a company of wolves, The Howling, Wolf, Teen Wolf, Wolfen, Ginger Snaps, Silver Bullet, Dog Soldiers, Underworld, Werewolves Within, which just came out in 2021, and then that Twilight series thing, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm obviously not a fan of, are just a handful of the movies that have featured stories of werewolves. Many of us cut our horror teeth on those movies, and if Rick Baker's special effects and makeup in An American Werewolf in London and other movies didn't make you actually consider going into the business of movie makeup, you better check your pulse. All of these movies have been inspired by the legends and lore passed down through the generations. They built a traditional lore that holds to a few basic principles. A person becomes a werewolf after being attacked by a werewolf and surviving. The full moon brings about transformation, and the human either transforms completely into a wolf or a bipedal man-wolf. The only way to kill the werewolf was with a silver bullet. For some cultures, werewolves have been a very real thing, and stories of skinwalkers and dogmen have been a part of modern-day America. Where did all of this start? The Epic of Gilgamesh is the beginning of so many legends. In this story, Gilgamesh turns away a potential lover when he learns that she has turned her ex into a wolf. That might make me reconsider asking her for a date. (laughs) Absolutely. 1020 AD would find the first use of the term werewolf in English. And that was spelled W-E-R-E-W-U-L-F. There is a story of Niceros that other scholars claim is the first story of a werewolf. 
The werewolves.com website claims that this is the real first story because it is an actual transformation, like what we're used to when it comes to werewolves. This was written by Petronius, who obviously was a Roman writer. He was a scribe in the court of Nero, so no wonder he was able to come up with a horror story of a man becoming a wolf. Because Nero was about as evil as they come. (laughs) Yes. He included the story in his anthology titled Satyricon, which was written around A.D. 61. Sounds like it's some kind of a convention that we could go to. Kind of cool. Cryptids or something? (laughs) It tells the story of friends Niceros and a companion. They are traveling and need to relieve themselves. They are outside traveling, and so naturally this needs to happen in nature. But they pick a bad spot, a cemetery. Don't pee in the cemetery. Oh my goodness. I was wondering where this was going. It clearly is disrespectful to urinate in a cemetery. Things get really weird when Niceros' friend rips off his clothes and urinates in a circle around himself. He gives a maniacal laugh as he transforms into a wolf and heads into a nearby town. While there, he kills a bunch of farm animals and is finally stabbed in the neck by a townsperson, killing him. So apparently, no silver bullet is needed here. He won't be peeing in that cemetery ever again. Probably the next werewolf legend would come out of Greek mythology. Lycian was the son of Pelas, and he was called to serve a meal to Zeus. He served Zeus human flesh, which I think was one of Zeus's servants or something. He killed him and cooked him right up. Which outraged Zeus because he could not eat human flesh. And so I think before he was about to do it, he realized what it was. He turned Lycian into a wolf. This is where we get the term for the werewolf transformation, lycanthropy, which is a supernatural transformation of a person into a wolf and sometimes other creatures like cats, goats, oxen, and dogs. The full moon coming into play as part of the lore may have been inspired by the fact that some people go crazy when there's a full moon and reveal the beast inside them. Maybe that's why several serial killers centuries ago were thought to be werewolves. There were medical conditions that may have led to some rumors and stories of werewolves. Pitt-Hopkins syndrome was officially discovered in 1978, but had been a condition for centuries probably that causes lack of speech, distinct facial features, difficulty breathing, seizures, and intellectual challenges. Food poisoning sometimes caused people to act like an animal, as did rabies. Hallucinogenic herbs could cause people to act out in strange animalistic ways. Medical lycanthropy is a psychological condition that causes people to believe they're changing into a wolf. And hypertrichosis is a genetic disorder that causes excessive hair growth all over the body. Werewolves started making appearances in the lore of cultures around the world. Witchcraft and werewolves seemed to go hand in hand and their trials were very similar, or sometimes held at the same time. People claimed that witches could shapeshift into wolves, or that they would ride wolves to sabbats. Let's look at some of these legends. We're going to start with Nordic werewolves. The Nordic people had shaman among them. Some of these shaman would go into the woods and abandon human contact and their identity. They would conduct initiation rites to become wolf warriors. They would live their lives in the wild and people started referring to them as wolfmen. Nordic folklore has the saga of the Volsungs. 
In this story, a man and his son, Sigmund and Simjotli, find wolf pelts that have the power to turn people into wolves for 10 days. They use the pelts on themselves, and they do indeed turn into wolves. Then they go on a killing rampage in the forest until the father ends up attacking his own son, leaving a mortal wound. A raven brings a leaf with healing powers, and the son is saved. There is also Egil's Saga, which features a character, Ulf Bjalfason. At night, his mood would darken and he would isolate from people. Villagers thought his behavior was suspicious, and they started calling him Kveld Ulf, which means Night's Wolf. We're not sure if he killed anyone, but people believed he changed his skin. And in Norse mythology, Loki's son is the great wolf Fenrir, who kills Odin during the events of Ragnarok. He symbolized power, wildness, and chaos. Next, we have Irish werewolves. In Ireland, a story about two werewolves was written as a treatise, which means it was treated as fact rather than legend. The story goes that a priest was traveling from Ulster to Meath when he was approached by a wolf. The wolf spoke to him and he wondered how a creature could look like a wolf but talk like a man. The wolf man said that he and his wife were from Ossory and that they'd been cursed to be wolves. It seems that in Ossory, every seven years, a man and woman would be compelled to take the form of wolves. When the seven years was up, they returned to human and two more people would become wolves. Why in the world would they ever start something like that? He told the priest that his wife was sick and dying and he asked the priest to come to the wife and give her absolution. The priest was terrified but followed the wolf. The male wolf peeled the wolf skin down his wife to the waist to prove to the priest that she was a human, and the priest gave her the viaticum. The wolf rolled her skin back up and she returned to her wolf form. This was indexed in the Topographia Hibernica in 1188. So kind of unusual that they would put this in as like a part of their real history. Definitely. South America has some werewolves. El Lobazon is a South American werewolf. The legend is shared throughout Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, and was started by the indigenous people known as the Guarani. There was a belief that the seventh son in a family would turn into a werewolf on the night of a full moon. The creature symbolized death and eventually melded with the legends of Europeans brought with them and became a half-man and half-wolf. Mexican werewolves. They're called Nahual. Mesoamericans believed that the Nahual was a guardian spirit that lived in animals, but they also believed that it was something that gave men the power to transform into an animal. This was much like a magician who would disguise itself. A Nahual was a powerful man disguising himself as a wolf in order to cause harm. Next, we have Montreal werewolves, and we have quite a few here because, Kelly, when I was doing our last episode, Haunted Cemeteries, there was a cemetery in there, Mount Royal, from Montreal, and I looked over on the side of the page where I got a lot of the information, and they had a story about Montreal werewolves, and I clicked on it, and they had a whole bunch of stuff. Now, I would think some of these stories could travel all the way across Canada, too. Interesting. Well, let's dig into it. The First Nations people of Montreal had a rich tradition of stories about werewolf-like creatures that they called Wahila, Shukla Warakin, Amarok, and the Wendigo. Werewolf sightings started in Montreal in the 1600s. The stories came over with the French colonists who had been dealing with werewolves since the late 1400s. One of the first legends was about a man named Jean Dubreau, who had one of the most productive farms on Montreal Island. His neighbors were confused, though, because they never saw Dubreau working the land. A fellow farmer was walking home one night and decided to cut across Dubrow's property. His name was Alphonse, and he was inebriated. 
so take that into account as we share his experience. He heard a very loud noise overhead, and when he looked up, he saw a large flying canoe. As one might if they're inebriated. (laughs) This canoe landed in a field on Dubrow's farm, and Alphonse claimed that the devil stepped out of the canoe, and he told the others in the canoe to get out as he cracked a whip. Twenty hunched-over wolfmen climbed out of the canoe. Alphonse jumped in the bushes to hide and watched the werewolves do all the work on the farm. I think I wouldn't mind having some werewolves around if that's what they're going to do. I'd be good for that. I might even leave out a stake or two. (laughs) Later, when the werewolves, devil and canoe, left, Alphonse went to the church and reported what he had seen. Also, including that Dubrow had come out to talk to the devil and that he thought the man had sold his soul in exchange for the work. The priest was alarmed and the next day led a group of parishioners to the farm where they poured holy water everywhere. They hid and waited to see what happened that night. The devil showed up with the canoe, and when everyone stepped out onto the ground, they shrieked in pain. The werewolves ran away. The devil believed that Dubrow had betrayed him, so he tore the door off the house and dragged the man to the canoe and took off. The priest and other men rounded up the werewolves and pricked them with a knife, which was the only way to turn them back to men. The men asked for forgiveness and became devout. Another interesting legend was about a miller named Joaquin Crete, who took in a French immigrant, Hubert Savageau. Not long after that, local sheep and cattle started turning up dead, clearly attacked by a wild animal. Crete figured out what was happening when he ran into a werewolf late one night walking home. He took out a scythe and cut the creature's ear off, causing it to flee. Crete found Savageau the next morning in the bathroom washing his head, which was bleeding. He saw that the man was missing an ear. In the 1880s, Montreal had a rash of sheep killings in which the poor animals had their throats torn out. The townspeople believed a local man was a werewolf, and they searched his property. They found a wolfskin belt, and when they confronted him, he admitted that he had turned into a wolf when he put on the belt and that he had killed the sheep. The townspeople burnt the belt and stopped the killings. And there's this story that appeared in the Quebec Gazette on December 2, 1767, about the Kamasaraska area. We learn that a werewolf, which they spelled W-A-R-E-W-O-L-F-E, which has roamed throughout this province for several years and done great destruction in the district of Quebec, has received several considerable attacks in the month of October last by different animals, which they had armed and incensed against this monster. And especially the 3rd of November following, he received such a furious blow from a small lean beast that it was thought they were entirely delivered from this fatal animal, as it sometime after retired into its hole, to the great satisfaction of the public. They've just learned as the most surest misfortune that this beast is not entirely destroyed, but begins again to show itself, more furious than ever, and makes terrible havoc everywhere it goes. Beware then of the wiles of this malicious beast, and take good care of falling into its claws. Next we have Theus of Livonia. Livonia was once part of Estonia that is found in the Baltic. This became a hotbed for werewolf persecution in the 1600s, with 18 trials for 31 people accused of being werewolves. One of these people was an octogenarian named Theus. The trial was held in Jurgensburg, and Theus made a full confession, claiming that he shapeshifted into a wolf along with other men, and that they went to hell three times a year to guarantee a good harvest. He proclaimed that they were the hounds of God and kept the evil ones from stealing their seeds, crops, and livestock. He claimed that there were werewolves in Russia, and Germany as well. His accusers tried to get him to admit he made a pact with the devil, but he never did. He was sentenced to receive ten lashings. The Galician Werewolf 
Sabine Baring Gould wrote the hymn Onward Christian Soldiers, and he was a clergyman who talked openly about a case of werewolves in 1849. So now I really like that song. If he's talking about werewolves. Definitely. This happened in what would become modern-day Poland near a thick pine forest. A beggar named Swiatek lived in a hovel outside the church, and the villagers brought him alms and food. He seemed particularly fond of one of the family's young daughters. He gave her a ring one day and told her to go to a pine in the churchyard with it and recite an incantation. He said she would find more jewels after doing that. The young girl disappeared, as did the beggar. Then other children who played amongst the pines disappeared. The villagers believed that wolves were carrying off the children, and they killed any wolves they saw, which is very tragic. Swiatek was found sometime later at a home with his wife and children. Villagers had smelled cooking meat and thought that Swiatek and his family had cooked a couple of ducks that had gone missing. When they busted in the door, they saw the man hiding something in his coat. They grabbed him, and when they opened his coat, they found the head of a young girl. The beggar confessed to killing and eating six people. He was placed in jail, but killed himself before the trial for lycanthropy started. Jean Grenier In the early spring of 1603, the St. Sievers district of Gascony, southwest France, found itself in the center of werewolf attacks. Boys and girls started disappearing, and two girls claimed to have escaped the attacks of a wolf under the full moon. The local magistrate started an investigation, and everyone was shocked when a 14-year-old boy named Jean Grenier stepped forward and claimed to have committed the attacks. He claimed that he had a wolf skin, and when he put it on, he would turn into a wolf. He claimed to be part of a pack of werewolves with nine members and that they hunted three times a week, usually feasting on young children. Yummy. Grenier went on to say that another boy named Pierre de la Tilhère had taken him into the forest one night to meet the Lord of the Forest. This creature marked Grenier's thigh and gave him an icy kiss and a wolf skin to help him transform into a werewolf. Grenier confessed to the murders and shared details no one else knew. The court took pity on him since he was young and poorly educated and sent him to be with the Franciscans at the Friary of St. Michael the Archangel, Bordeaux, in 1603. A friend visited him seven years later and claimed that Grenier had hands with nails like talons, his teeth had become longer like fangs, his eyes were sunken and black, and he ran on all fours. He would only eat raw meat. He died a year later, with most people assuming that he had a mental disorder. I mean, clearly something was going on there with him. Just find it interesting that his teeth had changed and everything, too. wonder if he filed them off or what. Could be. Next, we have the werewolf demon Taylor. There's another tale that comes out of France, and that ended with a tailor being burned at the stake in 1598 for being a werewolf. No one knows his name, but he came to be known as a werewolf of Chalons, or the demon Taylor. Chalons is in the Champagne region, and he owned a tailor shop here. It was said that the tailor liked to lure children into his shop with promise of treats. He would abuse the children, kill them, and then cut up their bodies, consuming some of the flesh and storing the rest in the barrels in the shop's cellar. He also committed crimes out in the forests, attacking travelers in the form of a wolf. Eventually, the bones were found in the barrels of his cellar and he was put on trial. He was sentenced to burn at the stake for being a werewolf even though he professed his innocence. His name and nearly all records of this case were then disappeared from history. But word of mouth kept the story alive. I guess that was a tradition that they did back then, is that they believed if somebody was guilty of these really heinous crimes, they would just disappear them from history so that they would have no record of ever being alive. So I don't know if they worried that people were going for fame or what the deal was. Gotcha. Next, we have the Bedberg werewolf. In 15th century Germany, there was the Bedberg werewolf. 
The story was passed down through pamphlets that finally made their way into Montague Summers' work, The Werewolf. This was about a man named Peter Stube, who was a wealthy farmer in Bedburg. Rumors started to circulate that he was turning into a wolf-like creature at night. Apparently, there were some gruesome murders taking place, and Stube was stretched on a rack until he confessed to practicing black magic and that the devil gave him a magic belt that helped him turn into a large wolf. He would return to human after taking off the belt. He went on to claim that he had killed 14 children and two pregnant women and eaten some of their flesh. He was sentenced to death, and the execution was carried out on October 31, 1589. What a curious day to do that. It was brutal. He was put on a wheel and had flesh torn from his body with burning pinchers, and then his limbs were broken with the blunt end of an axe. He was beheaded and burned on a pyre. No magic belt was ever found. And I do believe they put his head up on a stick, too, as a warning to everyone. Don't be a werewolf. Clearly. (laughs) And now we have the wolf of Ansbach, which is what got this whole thing started, because Wes had heard about this and wanted us to check it out. This is probably one of the most famous werewolf legends in history. Here's a poem about this creature. I, wolf, was a grim beast and devourer of many children, which I far preferred to fat sheep and steers. A rooster killed me, a well was my death. Now I hang from the gallows, for the ridicule of all people. As a spirit and a wolf, I bothered men. How appropriate now that people say, Ah, you damned spirit who entered the wolf. You now swing from the gallows disguised as a man. This is your fair compensation, the gift you have earned. This you deserve, a gibbet is your grave. Take this reward, because you have devoured the sons of men. Like a fierce and ferocious beast, a real child eater. Didn't rhyme, though. I like poems that rhyme. Redfish, bluefish. (laughs) Somehow I don't think Dr. (laughs) Seuss would have written a poem like this. (laughs) Probably not. So what really happened here? There was a Bavarian town called Ansbach that suffered a rash of animal killings that were followed by the killing of children in 1685. Wolves are not known to hunt alone. They work together as a pack. So to have a lone wolf is strange. Add to a lone wolf that it began hunting children, and it wasn't a far leap for villagers to proclaim that a werewolf was among them. And the villagers knew exactly which of them was transforming into this creature. There was a burgomaster, which is like a mayor of Ansbach, who was named Michael Light. Everybody hated this guy, and with good reason. He was a cruel leader and kept the town under a yoke. Nobody was sad when he died, but soon after his death, villagers started claiming that he had escaped death by transferring his spirit into a wolf. Drawn images of him in the form of a wolf, wrapped in a white linen shroud, started circulating as people claimed that he visited his old apartment, scaring the new tenants. Villagers gathered together and decided to hunt down the wolf before their children were killed. So is this a werewolf doing a little trick-or-treating with a sheet over his head like he's a ghost? Possibly. (laughs) The hunters created a wolf pit, which was a hole dug in the ground with stone walls to secure it, and then branches and straw were placed over the top to conceal it. They placed raw meat in the pit to attract the werewolf, but when they got no success with that, they switched to live bait and put a rooster in the pit. The wolf came along and fell into the pit, and the hunters killed the creature. They then pulled the body out of the pit and paraded it through the streets. But before they did that, they cut off its muzzle and put a cardboard mask on the head with the features of light drawn on it. They also put a wig and cloak on it. When the parade was over, the wolf was hanged by a gibbet on a hill so that everyone in the village could see it. The villagers felt that this display represented several things. Number one, they were no longer in danger. But by skinning the beast and putting it in human clothes, it was like they were getting rid of their political enemy. It made them feel as though they took the burgomaster out themselves. 
but they also felt that this sent a message to the devil that they would take out any of his evil servants that he might send. Villagers had been killed by the beast, but there is no record as to how many that was, and many still lived in fear, believing that more werewolves were around them. One has to wonder, though, what they thought when the creature did not revert to being a human once it was killed. Yeah, because in all the movies, they always revert back to being human. And finally, we have The Beast of Bray Road. Probably the most famous modern-day tale of a werewolf creature is The Beast of Bray Road, which is often referred to as a dogman. I had the opportunity to interview Linda Gottfried several years ago, who is an expert on this case and has written several books about this creature and other weird anomalies. The first sighting of this creature was in 1936 in Wisconsin, but it gained popularity in the 1980s. It was first seen on Bray Road, which is where its name comes from, but has wandered to the counties of Jefferson, Walworth, and Racine. Godfrey was a reporter at the time, and she was assigned by the Walworth County Week to cover the story. She was a complete skeptic and expected to find that the story was made up. The more people she interviewed, the more convinced she became that there was some kind of bipedal, wolf-like, dog-like creature roaming Bray Road. The creature stood around seven feet tall with brown or gray hair and left behind animal mutilations and scratches on cars. Sightings have been reported both at night and during the daytime and as recently as July of 2020. The show Expedition X went in search of it in 2021. We haven't watched that episode yet, so that should be interesting. There are some who claim that this was actually just a wolf or black bear, but the way Godfrey described it as walking makes it sound as though it is very comfortable walking on two legs. And I got into this because I was a reporter for 10 years, and I became a reporter because I was just wanting to do cartoons for the newspaper. They happened to hire me, and the next thing I knew, people around my own hometown of Elkhorn, Wisconsin, were calling the local animal control officer and saying they had seen what looked like a werewolf on Bray Road. I got the story, ran with it. It went national within two weeks, and here I am 20 years later. And I work with uh, the eyewitnesses. I usually try and start with their own sketch, so I have a really good idea. And uh, the one that I call the indigenous dogman is pretty much what most people describe, and it's the sketch that a lot of people will write me and say, I didn't know what I saw until I saw your sketch and recognized it, you know, and that's exactly it. And it basically looks like some type of wolf or wolf hybrid. I often think because of the longer fur and the longer snout, um, it looks kind of like if you bred a wolf with an Afghan hound or a Russian wolfhound. That gives you a pretty good idea of what it looks like. And if you look at it, you can tell it's not a Bigfoot. It's got a long canine muzzle, pointed ears on top of its head. Um, it holds its arms in the canine fashion, kind of like, you know, picture your little dog begging for treats. Um, it does have more muscular upper forelimbs and uh, thigh areas that most people will mistake for being uh, shoulders, but being a canine, it really doesn't have shoulders. Um, but it definitely has those canine legs walking on its toe pads. Again, really different looking from any sort of primate. That describes the creature. Usually people say that it's between six and seven feet tall, runs and walks as easily on its hind legs as on all fours. Oftentimes people will see it going from one position to the other, and it seems perfectly at home. Uh, it has, in most cases, the normal canine eye shine color of yellow or yellow-green, and it doesn't do anything usually that's overtly supernatural. Canines can and do walk on their hind legs, 
when they're trained and are motivated to do so. Um, and that's really one of the biggest mysteries, is why would these feral animals start walking on their hind legs? You know, and I, sure. I'm still looking for a definitive answer to that 20 years later. You know, I have ideas and theories. I don't have any uh, scientific evidence of why they do that. But um, it does freak people out along with the fact that they seem more intelligent than just, say, a wolf you might encounter in the wild or definitely than a bear or, uh, you know, maybe even a cougar. They, people feel that these are sentient creatures, that they are scoping them out as much as they're scoping it out. They feel that it's sort of communicating some way, whether through body language or, or some sort of primitive empathic message. They'll get the feeling that it's saying that it, it's superior to them, that it can get them if it wants to, that it's angry, that they saw it, that it would like to eat them but can't, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> very, very, and that's what really, really frightens people the most. That and the fact that after staring at it, and a lot of my witnesses have very good long looks in full daylight or right in the headlights, so they can get a good look, and they realize that they can't identify it or put it neatly into any little, uh, you know, organized part of zoology that they can, that they know of. And that's the other thing that scares them. They realize they're looking at something unknown that shouldn't be that's looking at them, you know. And that's a pretty frightening reality to have to face. Tales of werewolves can seem pretty unbelievable. But there are so many first-person accounts, and the legends have been with us for so long, it seems as though there must be some truth to them. Were there such things as werewolves? Do these creatures still wander the earth? That is for you to decide. And of course, there's a lot of tales of skinwalkers we haven't included in this. We may eventually do an episode on them. I have a feeling it'll be in combination with Skinwalker Ranch. I just keep putting that one off because so many people have covered it. It's been done to death. Yes, so. that's true. Eventually, we might get to that someday. One thing we'd like you guys to get to is checking out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Kate Kapanier for your one-time donation. She is also supporting the show as a regular executive producer as well. So thank you for your generosity and know that we have your son in our thoughts and prayers. Absolutely. And thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump as always. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. He won't be peeing in that cemetery ever again. Was his name Mr. Wiener?
like po- that dog. Possibly. That's what like they're going to start calling him. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wiener the werewolf. <laughs> oh, good grief. Doesn't sound very scary. No. That's what I'm going to be for Halloween next year. Wiener the werewolf. Great. <laughs> but killed himself before the trial for lycanthropy started. But killed him. But killed himself before the trial for lycanthropy. But killed himself before the trial for lycanthropy. For lycanthropy start. For I can't say lycanthropy all of a sudden. The logical. Good grief! I can't talk. Nobody was sad when he died, but soon after his death, villagers. 